Well, we live in a world, don't we, that makes a lot of statements. Statements are very important in our world. If you were to go to a court and hear arguments, the very first thing that's said is the prosecution says why they think you're guilty, and the guilty says why they think they're innocent. They make their opening statements. If you go to the world of sports and a team has a particularly convincing win, what do the broadcasters say? They say, oh, they made a statement today. They made a statement with that resounding victory. Or if, for example, in the world of politics, there's a a wave election and the populace rises up and votes the old guys out and brings the new guys back in and the the talking heads the next day say, oh, the voters have done what? They've, They've made a statement. They've said something on their hearts. They've spoken loud and clear. We live in a world where statements are very important. Well, here we see God making a couple of very big statements. He's making a statement about himself, and he's not only making the statement, he's backing it up. And God is designing these plagues to highlight exactly who he is and elevate the words that he's saying. Today we're going to cover the plague of locusts and the plague of darkness. But before we do that, let's sort of set the stage for these plagues number eight and nine. God has dealt seven death blows to date. These death blows have been increasing in their intensity. They began with turning the Nile into blood and frogs and insects. And as damaging and as annoying as these were, they caused no loss of life, no loss of property. The country of Egypt could have continued along. But next thing you know, with the, the beginning of this hail of plagues, uh, the, the, the plague of hail, rather, God says, now you're going to see the full force of my plagues, and now death, loss of property, loss of animals, loss of life, starts to become a very real thing. The plague of hail has destroyed everything. It's crashed down on people and animals, and anybody that didn't listen to the word of the Lord was crushed underneath this weight of hail that was at least the size of softballs. And Pharaoh has given a choice. He's he's shown you can turn your heart to God and you can let these people go without further damage to yourself or to your nation. But Pharaoh notices that there's a glimmer of human hope on the horizon. Although the, the fruit trees and the harvest, the early harvest, the barley, the corn example, it, it's, it's been destroyed, but there's these two wheat harvests. And Egypt is the breadbasket of the Middle East for Many generations, Egypt was the breadbasket of the world. Still is to this day. And so Pharaoh knows with all this rain and moisture, we've got a bumper crop coming in for sure. And so when given the choice between this wheat and emmer harvest, or turning his heart to God, he hardens his heart one final time and turns his heart to this one last trick, this one last play, he turns his heart to one last human option. Given the choice between God and the harvest, Pharaoh reneges on this promised repentance. He hardens his heart, and he chooses this harvest, and little does he know, little does he know, this last opportunity for leniency has slipped away from him forever. He doesn't know it yet but it's gone. 
Today, we will look at the plague of the locusts in the darkness, which strategically follow up on the plague of the hail. And there are two plagues in which God makes a great statement. Now, these two plagues are rather long in their description, as you heard when Daniel was reading. Again, thank you for your patience. So we will have to move through this material quickly, and there's much more material that we've had to leave out than we can include in. However, I felt it was best for us to move through these plagues a little quicker. So today we'll cover the plague of locusts and the plague of darkness, and then we'll make some application. The first thing we want to observe with this plague of locusts is that God is very quick to show us his purposes. He's going to send these locusts on the land, and it says that they are so thick and furious, they cover the land, utterly dark. They darken the land. They're piled up on top of each other. There's no precedent for this sort of thing, and nothing has ever happened like it since. But God says that he has three purposes, which you might want to circle or underline somehow in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 10. He says that my first purpose is to show Pharaoh and his servants that God, uh, uh, let's see here, uh, yeah, to show favor to show favor and servants the the how would I word this the heavy his heart same word for heavy let me look at this I don't know what I have done I have just done something I'm not sure what I've done Lord said to Moses go into Pharaoh for I've hardened his heart yes that's right <laughs> I know what I was saying now <laughs> forgive me God wants to show that he's hardened Pharaoh's heart and he uses a special word here do you remember the word for hail it was this word heavy. It was the word glory, heavy. And God is saying, I have made his heart heavy just like I made the hail heavy. And this is going to be for my glory. He's saying this sort of ironically. He's saying that he wants to demonstrate his power over Pharaoh. He has something to tell Pharaoh. The second purpose of God is this generational retelling. Look at verse 2. God says, and I want you to do this so that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson, how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what I have done among them. God's, one of God's sole purposes in this is so that the Israelites who are freed from this bondage will tell and retell, generationally so, what God has done. It says how God has dealt harshly. The better translation of this would actually be how God has played Pharaoh for a fool or how God has showed Pharaoh to be utterly foolish. God has destroyed Pharaoh, as it were. And God wants this to be told generation after generation. Fathers who saw this, eyewitness accounts to their sons. He wants fathers to tell this to their grandsons and so on, down through the generations. And this becomes an important point that we'll revisit later. And the third purpose that God has for this is that in this generational retelling, of how God has dealt harshly with Pharaoh, that people would come to know God. What God really wants to have is intimate knowledge of Yahweh's uniqueness in the hearts of people. And God says it right here. I've, I've, I'm, I'm hardening Pharaoh's heart so that I can show my power. I'm wanting you to tell this to your sons and grandsons. And I want you to retell this over and again so that so that my people, generation after generation, will know me personally. 
will have a personal relationship with him. And so, God sends Moses to warn Pharaoh about the plague that's to come. Moses goes to him and says, how long will you continue to refuse? How long will you continue to hold yourself up against? And Moses makes it a spiritual matter. He says it's it's not just a matter of letting go of something. It's not just a matter of letting go of people. Or what, What's ailing you, Pharaoh, is your pride. And your pride before the Lord. And you've, you've kind of got it in your mind that you've come so far now, you can't turn back and go the other way. How long will it be until you humble yourself? How long will you be until you bring yourself under the command of the Lord? I remember talking with an older gentleman. He was right at that stage between older and elderly, right in that bridge, those bridge years. He didn't believe the religion that he followed. And I asked him why he didn't start seeking God in the Bible. And he said, I've, I've been too long in this world. And I said, so you would stand before God knowing that what you have is false. Because you've been in it too long? And he said, yes. And that's the sort of tragic pride that inflicts a lot of people. And in fact, inflicts faith. He refuses to give in. He's gone too far. He's in this too deep. And Moses says, why do you keep resisting? Why do you keep puffing yourself up in pride and you're resisting the humility that's required to let these people go. Moses threatens that locusts will darken the land. Now this is no idle threat, of course. Uh, A locust swarm, which we'll talk about in a moment, is to this day a hugely feared event in the the nations of Africa. There was a, a recent locust swarm in 2015 that wiped out food for a nation. They happened back then too, and this is something Pharaoh would have been well aware of, and he was well aware of the destructive power of these swarms, and God tells them that he's coming, that it's coming. And it says that Moses, upon saying this, did something disrespectful to Pharaoh for the first time. He actually, in frustration and perhaps righteous indignation, just turned his back on Pharaoh and left. The the literal meaning is he turned on his heels and marched out. Moses didn't extend courtesies. He didn't give a nod. He didn't wait for an opportunity to leave. Pharaoh was insulted by this, which we'll see in a moment. But Moses is utterly frustrated with this man. How long will you let your people suffer? How long will you let your animals die? How long will you let Egypt be ruined? Because of your pride. And he turns on his heels and he walks out. Nobody does that. Nobody. And Moses did an about face and marched out. Pharaoh is a rather insulated gentleman. Being that he's pampered and tended to by servants 24-7, being that he can probably live many days of his life without leaving his palace, is somewhat unaware of what's going on in this world. History is full of tyrants whose nation is crumbling and Even to the last hours of their reign, they don't realize that it's completely and totally gone. They're still living in a delusion. And so Pharaoh's men, finally, finally, after all these plagues, they finally speak up. 
And they say something extremely ironic, and I've, we've noted this before as we've studied Moses' writings. He is a master of irony. And he says this, he says, the men say to Pharaoh, how long will you let this man be a snare to us? And the word snare is a synonym for slavery. What's a snare do? A snare, they, they had snares back then, just like we have today, little, little strings, cords. I don't know if they had wire, but um, it's, a, it's a loop. And you have a little piece of bait, and the animal walks through the loop, and the string closes in on the animal. And the more the animal struggles, the tighter the snare becomes. And if the animal struggles long enough, it'll just kill the animal. The animal doesn't have any freedom. It can't run away. It can't move. It's at the mercy of this snare. It's hung up. Its freedom is inhibited. It can't get itself untangled. And so the snaring agency of Egypt that had held the freedom of Israel for so long and so unnecessarily is now entangled by the spokesperson of these people. That's what Moses is trying to get across. He's trying to show you this irony spoken from the mouths of Pharaoh's servants. And they say, how long will this go? And so Pharaoh calls them back in. Pharaoh calls Moses back in. And Pharaoh does something very sneaky. Perhaps you've heard people do this before. They get angry. And when they get angry, they get unreasonable. When they get unreasonable, they remember facts wrong. And they'll throw something at you that is factually completely untrue. But in their anger and in their irrationality, they think themselves perfectly just. And this is what Pharaoh does. He, he calls Moses in. He says, okay, Moses, you can go. But I'd like to make a bargain with you. I want you to only take your men. This was in the Egyptian tradition of worship. They only went with the men. Now, God won't be bargained with. There was literally nothing in Moses' words that indicated that it would be just the men. He kept saying, people, my people, my people. It's the word gam in Hebrew, G-M, if you want to put English letters on Hebrew consonants. And it just means people, the whole nation, the nation. And Pharaoh fabricates this exception. Well, you go, that's what you said. You said it was only the men. Well, Moses never said any such thing. Moses said, oh, no. No, sir. I won't be bargained with. Neither will God. We all go. You're not holding our women and children hostage. You're not holding our things as collateral. We all go. Every last one of us. And at this, Pharaoh explodes. What has he done? He's, he's taken his own view of righteousness. He's changed the words of God and he's tried to jam those into the mouth of God and then God has the audacity to say no I meant what I said and Pharaoh gets very angry and you remember how Moses turned on his heel and did the about face and walked out well this is a classic you're fired no you can't fire me I quit moment Moses for, I'm sorry Pharaoh forcibly expelled Moses and it's a it's it's a disrespectful, unkind way to do it. I meant to mention Moses, Pharaoh says to Moses, he says, "The Lord be with you if I let you go." 
You might want to circle that in your Bibles. That, that's a very good literal translation of the Hebrew, but it's a euphemism. And what Pharaoh is saying there is he's saying, I bet you would like it if I let you go and thus demonstrated God's unique power. I bet you would like that. But I'm not going to do it because I know you have evil in your heart. Well, then Pharaoh has the audacity to treat Moses and Aaron like they're criminals and boots them out, expels them, has the guard push them out of his presence. Well, before long, Pharaoh would send those same guards to drag Moses and Aaron back into his presence. But for now, he attempts to dishonor and disrespect Moses and Aaron the same way Moses turned his back on Pharaoh. And so Moses and Aaron leave, and that brings us to the great devastation. There is a huge devastation. These locusts, they come flying in, and it's of divine origin. It says that God sent up an east wind. Locust swarms can travel up to 90 miles a day. And so off somewhere in the distance overnight, God stirred up an east wind. That's not usually where the locusts come from in that region of the country. They usually come from the south. But here he has them come from the east to show that this is divine origin. This isn't some sort of accident. Moses didn't have an advanced meteorological report. This was God's doing. And the text makes it clear that when these locusts swarmed, there was never anything like it before, nor will there ever be anything like it afterward. The locusts piled so deep and thick that you couldn't even see the ground. Now, this was no ordinary swarm of locusts. But even today, locust swarms are fairly terrifying. Locusts are just grasshoppers, grasshoppers like the ones we have. Biologists call grasshoppers, these little green grasshoppers we've had everywhere this summer, they call them solitary. They usually kind of keep to themselves. You say, well, that's not true. I see them eating each other in the street all the time. I've seen it a lot this summer. And I would say, yes, I don't know why biologists call them solitary. They just do. It's not my word, it's theirs. They're solitary. However, sometimes when these green grasshoppers decide to stop being solitary animals, insects, they become what's called gregarious. When they do so, they begin laying eggs, and eggs upon eggs upon eggs, and their birth rate over the course of a couple of weeks increases 40,000%. 40,000%. The newly socialized locusts turn from green to a terrifying yellow and black. They looked like tigers. When they turn yellow and black, it's because they're toxic. So animals, birds, don't touch them. They invade your country, they eat everything you have, and you can't eat them because they're toxic. When they invade, when these yellow and black monsters come flooding in, it's estimated that they can come in the billions. There was a locust storm in 1875 that scientists estimated was in the trillions. And when a locust turns yellow and black, becomes gregarious, 
he or she can eat their body weight every day. Now, let's put that in context. Get your weight in your mind and eat that many pounds of food today and tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. It's physically impossible. You couldn't do it. But these locusts can. In fact, UNICEF says that when locusts invade an area, a big swarm of locusts in one day can consume the vegetation for 80 million people. 80 million people in one day. And then they do it again the next day. And then they do it again the next day. And these swarms just move all over the continent of Africa. Now, God be praised, there's some things that we can do today to hold these swarms down, limit them somewhat. But this was unprecedented. There wasn't anything like it before. There was never anything like it after. And it says that the locusts were so thick and so full, they were piled up on top of each other, and they ate every last green thing that the hail did not clean. Now, even if this were a normal locust swarm by today's standards, it's perfectly believable that everything green would disappear. But on something that's unprecedented like this, it was a monumental, staggering problem that happened right before Pharaoh died. He put all his hope in this one last harvest. And with a word, gone. And so Pharaoh calls Moses back into his presence. He says, get back in here. Pharaoh's humiliated. And Pharaoh sees, finally, you may note in the text, Pharaoh sees, he says to Moses, will you, will you please remove this death from me? What is Pharaoh talking about by death? Locusts, did you know locusts don't attack people or animals? They just eat green things. Well, God sent the west wind, blew him away. So why does Pharaoh say that it was death? Well, Pharaoh knows the cows are dead. The livestock are dead. The portage animals, the donkeys, camels, they're dead. The hail wiped out all the fruit trees, wiped out the barley, wiped out the corn. And now the locusts have eaten everything else. And he has millions of subjects that are going to starve. And he knows now that there is going to be death piled upon death in the land of Egypt. And he asks Moses somewhat belatedly, would you please take this death from me? I've sinned this thing. He doesn't mean it. If he meant it, God wouldn't have brought what came next. Moses goes out, clears, prays, God sends a west wind, and it says not a single locust was left. God was making a statement about his control over all things nature. He controls the heavens above that brought the hail. He controls the sand beneath, which is where the locusts lay their eggs. 
He controls the insects themselves, and he controls the wind, who knows how many hundreds of miles away to bring these animals to the land. God can strategically land a swarm of locusts on one spot for any amount of time and send it away. And God is explaining in terrifying terms and actions that he is the Lord of all this. But friends, there's one last idol. There's one last idol that God has to chop down. And God does something so profound in chopping this idol down, does something so wise, it's hard to describe. You wouldn't have done it this way. You wouldn't have guessed that he did it this way. But the highest, the holiest, the greatest God in the Egyptian pantheon was a God named Ra, or Amun-Ra. And God wanted to deal Amun-Ra a blow. And so what did he do? He sent darkness for three days. And that brings us to our next play, God's theological assault. God says that he is going to send the darkness that can be felt. Now, I will tell you, commentators argue pretty bitterly over what that means. We know what it means in a limited sense. The darkness causes people to grope. But there are a few different kinds of darkness in African nations at this time. There is darkness caused by sandstorms. These sandstorms darken an area, and they darken it so profoundly you can't light a lamp, you can't have a candle. And it sort of just whisks out everything that has light. But it's still there's still some light. It's a grayish, brownish light in the sandstorm, but no light works. Some commentators think it was that. I don't think it was that. Some commentators think it was normal nighttime darkness for three days, which would be amazing and supernatural, but it doesn't explain the words darkness that can be felt. It doesn't explain the way the people just suppressed and only laid in their beds and didn't see one another because they had lamps, they had lights, they had candles and torches and the whole nine yards. And yes, they didn't have modern electricity, but they also had lamps, lights. They knew how to take copper and make things refract, reflect, whatever the word is. No, 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 this was something different. This was something profound. This was a darkness, and this is, I think, the right option. This was a darkness so profound that the light couldn't pierce it. It literally gobbled up the light. And when somebody lit a candle or a lamp or a torch, perhaps you could see the flames, but you would not see any reflections off of that light. There was no way to get light. There was no way to see. And so the people could only lay about in their houses. They could only hole up and hope that it would pass by. And you can imagine the anxiety that a person would feel. They've just seen the worst hailstorm in their history. The locusts have come and eaten everything up. And for three days and nights, you can't see a thing. And all you have is your worries over what you're going to eat when this passes. They were hungry. 
And if there was any food left to find, they wouldn't have found it. God leaves them alone with their thoughts and asks them the question, where is Ra? He's nowhere because he doesn't exist. And God holds them in that darkened state. This is, like I say, a frontal assault on Egypt's chief god, Amun-Ra. He is the creator, the self-existent, the highest god. They say that he's the only true source of light, life, and justice. This is from a hymn that they would sing to Ra. Lord of truth, father of gods, maker of men, creator of animals, Lord of things that are, creator of the staff of life. He was the only self-existent god in the pantheon of Egypt. And suddenly, he was absolutely incapable of helping these people. The the Israelites may have been tasked in their slavery with building temples to Amun-Ra. The Israelites had Yahweh as their God, and the Egyptians would simply say, well, Yahweh is the offspring of (laughs) Amun-Ra. Why don't you think about that? And let me give you three days of pitch black to let the truth of it settle There's something scientific as well. When a locust swarm invades a land, apparently the week following that event is extremely important to kickstart the photosynthesis of the next round of plants. And the three days and nights of darkness would not only have been a grave theological problem, it also ensured stifling of Egypt's agriculture moving forward. This was an incredible blow. An incredible blow to Egypt. And so Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron back in. He found them because word got out that Israel had light where they were. And so Moses comes and finds Pharaoh and Pharaoh tries to bargain with him yet again. Okay, okay. Take your animal, or take your wives, take your children. But I need one bit of collateral. I need some collateral. Leave the animals. And you can see this growth of Moses, this development as a leader. He's not budging, he's not changing. You know what he says? Not a hoof will be left in this land. It's really profound. No, I'm not bargaining with you. I'm not dealing with you. God has spoken, and we are going with all of our things. Now, I want everybody to do something. Look at the end of chapter 10. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, or very well. I will never see your face again. Now keep reading into chapter 11. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away. Speak now in the hearing of the people. That they ask every man and so forth. And he tells them to ask for something from the people. 
Then go to verse 4. Then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. And what Moses does here, verse 10, Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. In chapter 11, Moses and Aaron have this one final conversation with Pharaoh. But that's a bit problematic, isn't it? Because in chapter 10, Pharaoh said, never see me again. Well, the best way to understand this is chapter 11, and Moses will do this in some other places as he writes, chapter 11 is sort of an addendum to chapter 10. In other words, Moses says, here's the conversation. I told Pharaoh, not a hoof will remain. And Pharaoh said, get out, never see me again. But before I left, I warned him of this final plague, of the death of the firstborn. That's sort of Moses' logic as he's writing this. And so I hope you'll see that as we get into the study of that next week. Well, the darkness lifts. God has shown that he's superior to Egypt's gods. God has shown that he won't be bargained with, that he demands absolute surrender to himself, his purposes, that he doesn't tolerate any self-righteous tweaking of his words. And here we are at the footstep in the final place. Now there will be a little lead up to that. We've got some text to go before we get there. But let's draw two applications from this passage today before we wrap up. Number one, God is jealous for his glory in all the earth. God is jealous for his glory in all the earth. And he takes offense at false substitutes. He takes offense at false substitutes. You see, everybody, God is exclusive in the world. He's exclusive in his existence. He alone reigns. And he jealously guards that right as God. Isaiah 45, 5 says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Isaiah 43, 10 says, Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. And so when God says later on in the book of Exodus, you shall worship the Lord and the Lord alone for I am a jealous God. He has an exclusive relationship with his creation. And he doesn't share it with anybody else or anything else. And when mankind looks into the heavens and sees something glorious and begins to worship it, God takes offense because he wants them to see the person who created it, not the object itself. And so God is eager to show the Egyptians that he alone reigns. He's not tolerant of Amun-Ra. He's not tolerant of any other God that would stake claim to creator God. And God jealously guards that prerogative. And he wants the world to know that he exclusively reigns. 
Now, here's the question. What's the best way to tell that to the world? What's the best way to declare to the world God's exclusive reign and rule, God's exclusive existence in the cosmos? How do we do that? Well, that's our second application. The chief means of proclaiming God's glory to the ends of the earth is to tell it to our children and grandchildren. Every one of us in here has a little mission field of their own. And they're your children and they're your grandchildren. And when we tell them over and over again how good God is and kind and exclusive and how he alone reigns and how he has saved me from my sins and how this amazing God satisfied his wrath by pouring it out on the Lord Jesus Christ instead of on me, when we testify to our children and to our grandchildren these truths, the Lord delights to open their heart and mind. And then they become proclaimers of it. We can't win the world until we win our families. God is laying on us the burden to proclaim to our kids and to our grandkids and that God grants us years to our great-grandkids, his exclusive glory in all this. Be brave. Be brave. God is coming back. Jesus, The Lord Jesus is coming back. And every word that you speak from him, with good and righteous pride, you'll be happy to have said. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you reign exclusively in this world. You are exclusive in your majesty and power. You're jealous and jealously guarded. That truth is very important to us because it's important to you. So may we be, may we be faithful in proclaiming these truths to our kids, to our grandkids. And may they then take this message to the we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, believe it.